scripture for this week is Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. And I'll be reading from the NIV. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out to be with him, Jesus, to be executed. When they came to place to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is a movie that I thought of when we were looking at this series and looking at this particular theme. Um, it's a movie that uh, I, I'm not going to recommend it necessarily. There are some uh, questionable parts to it, but uh, there is a fair amount of, hu of, of humor in it, but there is one word that comes to mind, and people remember this movie because of one word. And that word is, fits our series because we're talking about the things that are uh, unexpected. We're talking about a God who does the unexpected. We talk about Jesus, the Savior, whose whole ministry was unexpected. And another word for that, that comes from this movie, and we'll hear it now. Inconceivable! 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 Keep going with it. Just, let's, let's do it again. Inconceivable! Now say it with him. Inconceivable! All of creation, we look around and we say how beautiful it is. Everything is so gorgeous in this world if we haven't ruined it. And last night, I was a bit turned around, but it looked to me like there was, everywhere I turned, there was a colorful sky. I walked in the house and I looked out and that faces south. The windows, there's beautiful sky. I was outside and I looked to to the west and it was just all across it was 
it just rippled with clouds and I'm thinking it's inconceivable it's it's something that God in his incredible creativity conceived of something that we couldn't have and so you can also imagine how God feels when he sees that inconceivable beauty marred by the brokenness of sin and so when we talk about an incredible God when we talk about an amazing God there must be an amazing grace to see us in our brokenness and to offer a way of life a way of hope a way of of growing and a way of overcoming the darkness of this world Mike Iaconelli was the co-founder of a Christian publishing company called Youth Specialties. We still have resources from Youth Specialties in our youth ministry library. Uh, and Mike Iaconelli actually was here and preached at Yellow Creek one time. And he was one of the main editors of the Wittenberg Door uh, satirical Christian magazine or Christian publication. Um, he said uh, this in his book, Messy Spirituality. He says, for a period of time, we were lucky enough to have a housekeeper. She would come in once, to week, once a week to dust, vacuum, and clean every little out-of-the-way corner of our house. He said, I dreaded the day that she came. Because my wife and I would spend all morning cleaning the house before the housekeeper got there. We didn't want the house to be dirty, or what would the housekeeper think? He says, we act the same way with God. We talk our way out of the spiritual life by refusing to come to God as we are. Instead, we decide to wait until we are ready to come to God as we aren't. We decide that the way we lived yesterday, last week, or last year makes us damaged goods. And until we start living right, we're not God material. He goes on, some of us actually believe that until we choose the correct way to live, we aren't choosable. That until we clean up the mess, Jesus won't have anything to do with us. And Iaconelli says that the opposite is actually true. Until we admit our mess, Jesus won't have anything to do with us. I'm not sure that that's exactly correct. I think he will keep trying. But once we admit how unlovely we are, how unattractive we are, how lost we are, how in need we are of God, then Jesus shows up unexpectedly and shows up sometimes inconceivably. What we can't conceive, God is in the business of creating every day. According to the New Testament, Jesus is attracted to the unattractive. He prefers to reach out to the lost ones, to the losers, to the broken, to the messy, to the crippled. He prefers to reach out because of the difference between these two criminals, which is a standard kind of, 
uh, of dichotomy that applies to all of life for us. It represents two particular perspectives about our approach to God. Uh, and that uh, one person said there's really only two types of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. Uh, and that uh, in this particular case, there was one criminal whose heart was softened and the other whose heart was simply hardened even further. And the idea that we are all one of two thieves is something to think about. Which one of the thieves, which one of the criminals are we? But then ask this question. How, even regardless of that, how could Jesus, in the hours leading up to his body finally succumbing to the torture and to the brokenness and the bleeding and to essentially the death that was painful and torturous hanging on the cross. How could he in that state be available to these men in their death throes to address the issues that had eternal implications? Three hours or so before his death and still being concerned about their welfare. Now, these men had heard and seen all that had taken place. Both of them were witnesses to the way that Jesus cared for those around him, the way that he was responding to the fact that those that were torturing him, he was still offering kindness and grace to them. An absolutely inconceivable grace that makes no sense in this world. And we want to look at the differences between these two criminals because that same grace was offered to both and they were the ones that chose. The first thief responded based upon power and control. And really all of life for those that are stuck in the way of sin comes down to this. Am I willing to give up control? Am I willing to actually allow someone to lead me? Am I willing to allow the word of God to speak to me in a way that it actually becomes my life? It becomes the way I live. It becomes the principles and the, and the standards by which I live by. I, am I willing to make Jesus the one that I follow? He was also pursed on uh, he was also focused on his personal gain and what he could get. He just wanted to save his life. He didn't care about anything else, and he didn't really care that much about who Jesus was, except to use who Jesus was to benefit him. And that's the thing that we often see when it's those that are unbelievers. We want to leverage God if you're a God of love, you would come and save me. You would rescue me from all of this. And that's what he was doing. You have the power. You're the Messiah. Then you ought to be able to save us and get us out of this death sentence. He was demanding 
that Jesus act for his benefit. And he was trying to manipulate Jesus by ridiculing him. If you were really the Messiah, you would save us. And then we see this second thief. There are three things that we see. He had a repentant heart. He was sorry for what he had done. He had a contrite spirit. In other words, the way that he talked to the other criminal, you know, have, have you no respect? The, he, the, the term is used is called the fear of God. Have you no fear of God? Have you no respect? Do you not care enough about God above yourself to even offer civil respect to Jesus? And the third thing was he had a simple request with no expectation, no demand, but simply a plea. Lord, even if you don't save me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an incredible contrast with the first thief. These two had a future, but very different in the direction that they were going. So through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection, Jesus made a new way. These words of Jesus from the cross point us toward his mission. And that's something that we need to, to do is to say, wow, this is an incredible grace that he offers. Even in his dying moments, he's offering this grace to, to those that are willing to offer their heart. And so when he promised him this very day, you will be with me in the kingdom, was a promise that Jesus was offering because he sensed that here was someone who knew he was messed up. He knew it wasn't right. He knew that his life wasn't what it was supposed to be. And he offered it, acknowledged it, and made no demands. That's the kind of attitude and approach that God can work with. And that's the kind of approach that Jesus was most attracted to because he knew that that kind of a heart was humble and was not expecting or demanding, but was open to the grace and love of Christ. Time and again throughout Jesus' ministry, he had demonstrated this inconceivable grace that doesn't make sense to anyone. And it doesn't certainly make sense uh, to those who have a mind of the flesh and to those who are committed to continuing to live in darkness and choose darkness as a way of life. This is not an issue of guilt. It's an issue of choice. And we see two different choices between the two people on the cross. One was gracious. One was respectful. One was caring. One was honoring Jesus and accepting what he was destined for and what he deserved. The other was completely had no use for God, no use for Jesus, other than what he could gain for his personal gain and, and to sustain his life. 
And so when we see this being about God's mission in, for Jesus in the world, that's the thing that we need to point to here. Jesus was still in his dying moments from beginning to end. He was faithful to his calling. That's the question. Every one of us, especially those of you that are younger and, and, and are having to inherit this messed up, even more messed up than when many of us were young, this terribly confusing and unethical and self-serving and completely idolatrous culture we live in, uh, this world we live in where everybody's committed to their own way, their own views, their own right. It's what, this is the right thing and that is the wrong thing. And there is a right and a wrong. The problem is they arrive at the right without Jesus. It's their own right. In that kind of a world, we pray for clarity that you have a sense of mission and calling to bring peace, to bring joy, to bring love and caring to other people. And Jesus was doing that even in the middle of his death, which is amazing. So his mission, he never gave up on it. And, and let's just ask this question. Can any of us think of times in our life where we said, well, that's it. I'm, I'm going to have to see something from God before I'm going to commit to it. I'm going to have to see a, a change or a turn or something. You know, are we, are we demanding of God that some great blessing or relief is offered to us? Or are we going to commit to the mission God has regardless of what the circumstances are? Let's look at some passages to help illuminate this a little bit. First um, John 2, 3-6. These are all fairly brief passages. In uh, First John 2, 3, he says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. That's pretty bold. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Now, I wish that I could implant that into the mind of every believer. I didn't watch any of the World Series game last night. I, in fact, I, I, was, I was working on preparing and I watched none of it. I turned it on for the postgame only. Period of 10, 15 minutes. And I was blessed to see this. Now, I, I know some of you are skeptics of this kind of thing, and, and that's okay. Uh, you have some questions, uh, because sometimes it's the popular thing to do. But I will tell you this, that there was a young person that was interviewed after uh, the, uh, this was, this was both, well, this was the World Series game, but the other one that I was flashing back and forth to 
was the Notre Dame game. Now, I'm sorry uh, for, for any of the college confusion here uh, and debates that happen to go on between which blue is better and which maize or yellow is better or gold, whatever. Uh, I hope we can keep laughing at that. And I'll just tell you this. The fact that we are still brothers and sisters in Christ is a demonstration that Christ is greater than either of the college teams or any of the college teams we root for. But that being said, I love it when athletes give credit because they have just won something major and they stop long enough in the middle of a nationally televised thing to give credit to God. Now, we can be skeptical or we can go, yeah, that's a little, that's just kind of a, a fakey thing, right? Well, we can be skeptical all we want, but who receives praise for that? Now, in the Notre Dame game, there was also a young player that they interviewed. And he started with these words. First of all, I'd like to give thanks and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, anyone who is skeptical or who downplays that, it's probably because they had more courage than we do to name the name of Jesus Christ and be bold about who, we, who gets number one credit. We have got to be past this worry about what people think. We have got to be people that will rise up and say, even as this criminal did in his death, to say, don't you have any fear of God? Don't you have any respect, any decency? This is the Savior, the Messiah. We need to be bold and proclaim that. What would that look like if we actually converted our inconceivable grace into an inconceivable love for other people? What would that look like? Let me get back on track. John 14, 15 says it very simply. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's Jesus. It's that simple. If you love me, keep my commandments. Philippians 2, 1 to 5. Therefore, if there's any encouragement for being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, uh, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships, it says, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, um, I, this is where I want to walk, but I'm a little restricted. But I'll tell you this. So there, is a, there was an interview I heard on the radio. I actually shared this with the MYF last night. They were probably so tired they won't, they won't remember I said it. But anyway, there was a, uh, there was a guy on, on being interviewed on, on the radio. He wrote a book called Grace Bomb. And he tells the story about how he had been talking about this, he had been writing about this, and so his family. It was father-daughter night, and... 
there were, there were two stories that he show, shared about this. I'll just share the first one. He said that, that he was walking into father-daughter night. Uh, they were going to McDonald's, which I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't Ruth Chris Steakhouse. It was McDonald's. That was better, right? And so they're walking across the parking lot. He's holding her hand. And as they're walking along, she stops. And she looks at her dad and says, Dad, let's grace bomb someone. And he goes, okay. So they walked in and they picked out an older couple that was in there and paid for their bill ahead of time. And, uh, and, and so he was just talking about the example of, of the infectious joy that is there when you think about the opportunity that we have to live like Jesus did, to do inconceivable things. Uh, one time, Cheryl and I, and I think I've shared this before, one time uh, there was, there was a, a really bad restaurant experience. I know none of you ha- can relate to this, right? I mean, this, this person was distracted and, uh, and, and just not very attentive and didn't refill things and and just seemed to be very very out of it and aloof and not attentive to our needs right and so they when it comes time to a tip for a tip in that situation they don't deserve it in fact we give a message don't we in our great wisdom well they're going to learn because we're going to stiff them uh, to teach them a lesson. You better be nicer. And I said to Cheryl, I said, let's give them an extra $20 tip. She goes, what? And then she got, she got it. You know, and, and we're, we just said, let's just do it. You know, I don't know what the impact, we never knew what the impact was. But it was undeserved. It was inconceivable. And do you know why it makes perfect sense? Because we don't deserve sometimes, many, many times, we don't deserve the grace that is offered to us. And inconceivably, Jesus offers us life a new start, a blessing. These passages, there are many, many more, but just talk about how we pattern our life. We, we follow everything. We're in, in Ephesians, it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's powerful from Paul. Follow God's example, he says. Therefore, dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love as Christ has loved you. So loving as Jesus loved, living as Jesus lived, serving as Jesus served, is the only way that we can accomplish the same mission as Jesus. What I'd like us to reflect on, perhaps in your classes, perhaps at home, perhaps over dinner, if you're spending time with other people, 
for, for lunch or for visiting this afternoon. I'd like you to discuss, pray about, give feedback. Uh, and if you have feedback uh, for, for us as leaders um, as to what we might be about that is inconceivable, an amazing grace, what would that look like? Are we ready to demonstrate it to those outside of the church, to those that are in need, to those whose lives are messed up? What, would, what if we were fully committed to generous giving? What if we worshiped and communed like the Acts church in the book of Acts described where they spent time and energy, prayed, met in homes, and they, they worshiped together, they prayed together, they, they spent time reflecting on who Jesus was and is to them. What if people found a loving answer to the turmoil in us, where it didn't make sense, but we gave an inconceivable grace to others, not because they deserved it, but because that's the way Jesus would want us to act. It's the way that he acted. What if everyone experienced the joy of using their gifts? What if we did away with every ministry description? And what if we did away with office terms? And what if every new person that walked in these doors within weeks after they are here are given the opportunity to serve in a ministry assignment? What if we broke the mold and allowed the inconceivable grace of God to be unleashed within us and around us? What if every person here, young and old, had a ministry? What if we were led by our young people and thrived on leadership development? What if, what if, what if we lived out an inconceivable grace? One of the most powerful prayers that I've ever heard comes out of the horrors of Ravensbrück concentration camp. I'm not sure if I pronounced it right, but Ravensbrück was a concentration camp built in 1939 for women. Over 90,000 women and children perished in Ravensbrück, murdered by the Nazis. Corrie Ten Boom wrote in The Hiding Place, uh, and she was imprisoned there too, um, the prayer found in the clothing of a dead child. Here is the prayer. And I ask you to think about this in terms of how it impacts us in our world situation today. The prayer goes, O Lord, remember not the men and women of goodwill not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all of the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of this suffering, our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from 
this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. That makes no sense. It is an inconceivable grace found in the prayer of a girl that was killed and murdered. A prayer that sounds familiar, doesn't it? When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May we be a people of great grace. May we be a people of forgiveness. And may we turn away from our brokenness and live more into the opportunity that we have to bless other people's lives and to work for others. What a calling we have to be agents of the grace of Jesus Christ. And may we now close our service with the song Amazing Grace. <laughs>